Well, good morning, everyone. We continue in looking at Jesus in Gethsemane. Remember what we said last week. What is the Gethsemane? The Gethsemane is a wine, I'm sorry, an olive press, an olive press. It's the place in the Mount of Olives on one side of it, kind of a cave area where in which there was a press that they would put the olives in and then roll the big stone over the olives to squeeze out all the juices. And Matthew specifically says Jesus goes to Gethsemane. I think it's Matthew who said that. Am I right? Somebody said it. What? You can't hear me? Isn't... Oh, she wasn't paying attention. Okay. Okay. Brenda was taking a short nap. <laughs> Don't, let me tell you something. This is a table of firebrands up here. <laughs> and so what's happening here is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, one man is undergoing the squeezing or the crushing that was due to us because of our sin. And in this garden, Jesus is facing the taking to himself of all the accumulated sin of all his people throughout all history. And he knows this, and he is anticipating this. And it's important that we see, as I feel like I need to drum this over and over again into us, everything he knows, everything he anticipates, everything he says, every place he goes, everything about this man's life, and especially his ability to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Everything is because he believes the scriptures as revealed and applied to him by the Holy Spirit. This is the quintessential living word of God taking to himself our humanity and living as a man, as a man who is a total revelation, the total image of the scriptures or of the word of God. And so hopefully what this helps to show us is that our lives must If we are going to please God and live according to his purpose, our lives must be entrenched, immersed in the word of God. So another encouragement for all of us, examine your own time with God in the word. 
Ask him. Don't ask me. I don't know. Is it sufficient? Don't assume. Let's be a people increasingly of the Word of God. Amen. Father, as we continue to go through this very limited experience with Jesus in Gethsemane, Father, we pray that you not only be explaining what we need to understand, but Father, that you will be giving us the experience in some degree as we can take it of what it costs Jesus to go to the cross. Father, for we know that the doorway to the cross is through Gethsemane. And apart from this door, he does not go. And only through this door will he go to the cross. So, Father, we ask that you make the travail and the agony and the turmoil of the Son of God in Gethsemane so much larger and more real to us and more significant. Father, that we may have a better apprehension as to the fundamental necessity of simply obeying you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, verses 37 and 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Do you know who the two sons of Zebedee are? James and John. Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. I've said this a lot of times, and I know it's true in me, and I have to be very careful about it. When we read the Word of God, especially the Word that pertains to the person and character and experience of the Lord Jesus, we have to be very careful how we read, how carefully we read, how quickly we read. So let me read this verse again to make sure that we begin to get a clearer context and revelation of what's really going on. When Jesus and all the disciples enter into the mountain, go into the Mount of Olives, but then all the disciples remain here except for three, Peter, James, and John, who come, y'all come over here a little bit further. Y'all pray, and I'm going over here to pray. And what was Jesus experiencing? He says this, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. This man is terrified. He's terrified. As Jesus enters the garden, 
he is becoming increasingly sorrowful and troubled. But you see, this isn't the beginning of him feeling sorrowful and troubled. What it is, it is a crescendoing, crescendoing of the trouble and the sorrow that he has already begun to experience, even at the supper itself. Jesus began to change his, his visage. He began to be changed before them. He is not, in their minds, the self-confident, have-it-all-together in control man. He is, but it doesn't seem that way. Something is going on with the Lord. Something's happening to the master. Something's weighing on him increasingly. So have you ever been anywhere where you've talked to someone and all of a sudden you know, wait, what's going on in you? I I see, I notice something that's happening. We've seen this. We've all experienced this. And so the, the clouds of if you would, the storm that is before him are increasing and it's getting darker and darker and darker. And so as he enters Gethsemane, these clouds now are rushing in on him. However, this is not the first time. Remember in John 12, 27, Jesus says this, and this is a little bit before the meal. Now my soul, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour, this purpose, I have come into the world. Jesus has come into the world specifically to face this hour and what will be the consequence of his decision. This is the culmination, the fruition of what God's purpose is for him. Why was Jesus sorrowful and troubled? Because, again, why was he? Because it's not that in a nebulous way he knew something was going on. Jesus was sorrowful and troubled because he knew the scriptures. And he not only knew the scriptures, but he knew that they, those scriptures that pertain to him specifically. And so he remembers, he has in his mind, Zechariah 13, 7, which he essentially quotes in verse 31, which we went through a couple of days ago. <clears throat> God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He enters the garden knowing, I am going to be struck down. Again, how does he know this, Barry? He knows Zechariah 13. He knows the scripture, and he knows so many other scriptures. Remember, in Isaiah 53, he is going to be crushed for our iniquities. So when Jesus enters the garden as our sinless sin bearer, he is purposefully entering it to be crushed for our iniquities, but he enters it With horror and with terror, but horror and terror mixed with joy. Isn't it something? Horror, terror mixed with joy. What a gumbo. What a gumbo of emotions. What is it? Horror for what? What is the horror? That has gripped his soul. What is that horror? Our sin. Our sin. What is the terror that has gripped his soul? The prospect of the coming wrath of God. And what is the joy that grips his soul? 
the fulfillment of the Father's purpose. So I think we need to see all three of these, if you would, in a mix as a gumbo, as I said, of emotions. So let's talk a little bit about each one of them. The horror of bearing our sin. The battle of Jesus' faith was the battle to trust God as described in the scriptures. And he knows that in order to do this, this holy and pure and sinless man must take to himself the worst issue of creation, the most putrefying and polluting and disgusting and filthy, et cetera, et cetera, issue, which is our sin. He must become polluted with our sin in order to bear it to the cross, to become the one who becomes guilty on our stead, in our stead, on behalf of us, remaining ever innocent in himself as to his own character and activities, but carrying our sin to the cross so that he can be declared officially or legally sinful. Now, we don't get this. And the reason we don't get this, because you see, and and I have to fight the same battle. We can sit here and hear that. Let's be honest. It probably doesn't bother most of us. Okay, he carried my sin. Okay. Okay, he's going to experience something that, okay. And how many of us are taking, God is taking our breath away and almost causing us to be suffocating with the the revelation of what this must have cost him. And what does that say to us? It says to us that God's view of sin, understandably so, is infinitely different than ours. That our view of sin, and because of sin, is so self-man-centered that we see it as normal. And basically, it's okay. It's just some things that we do and we get in trouble. And, and, you know, okay, but, you know, this is just how life is. And it becomes a normal thing for us with, to which we are willing to cooperate and allow to continue in us without a whole lot of battling against it. Now, come on. Is that right or wrong? How many of us are terrified or horrified by our own sin? I mean, it has to really be a grievous sin for us to really, all of a sudden, it impacts us and we step back and say, wow. But just the little things, quote, little things we do. And I believe here is one of the, here is the place of one of the biggest weaknesses in the church. We don't get it. We don't have sufficient understanding and experience of what our sin is to God. So let me encourage you this morning. You may want to write this in your notes. 
I do this regularly. Why? I need it. Oh, God, I need it. Cause me. To have an increased appreciation and experience of what my sin is to you. Because as the horrific issue of sin begins to dawn and grow in my heart, in my soul... And I begin to be captured by the absolute horror of sin. Then when I am tempted to sin, the Holy Spirit has a whole lot more what what word do I want? Not ability in me, but authority in me, activity in me, whatever, to lead me to say no to any and every sin whatsoever it might be. We don't know what sin is to the extent that we need to because we haven't asked. You have not because you asked not. Remember James 4, 2? And the church asks God for a lot of stuff. Oh, we're asking and asking. So I want to encourage you. Ask God to bless us with a much deeper, all-pervasive understanding, recognition, and experience of what our sin is to him. Jesus enters Gethsemane. And I just wonder how his body, his soul, must have shuddered, must have literally quaked. Maybe to visible shaking, I don't know, quaked at the prospect of having our sin placed on his shoulders. Have you ever been afraid so much that you literally shake? Anybody ever been in a situation where fear has so gripped you that you shake? Anybody? And you breathe funny and your whole body begins to change. This man is facing the worst human experience as to our sin that anybody could. You see, such anticipation created such a deep revulsion in his sinless soul. He entered the garden with horror. The horror of taking my thoughts. The horror of taking my motives. The horror of taking my excuses and explanations. The horror of taking what I do privately or publicly. The horror of where I go, where my eyes go, where my desires go. The horror of what I say and the way I say it. He's taking the horror, the horror of it all. 
It's horrible. Church, what? It's horrible. This is horrible to the Son of God. And oh, to God that it would be increasingly horrible to me and to us. You just think, this holy and sinful and righteous man has to take your and my filth unto himself. To own it as if it were his personally. If we don't do anything else this morning, hopefully we have a growing appreciation of our sin. Oh, I know why I sin, because I do this. But you don't know what he did, and you don't know what she did. And I was this, and I was that, and all these filthy, filthy excuses to a holy God. Can you say amen? They're filthy excuses. Filthy. The only thing our God wants to hear is this. I am Guilty of doing that whatever, notwithstanding anything. It is I and I alone, somebody said, who has sinned against you and done this great evil. Somebody said that. Somebody said that somewhere. You see why David was called a man after God's own heart? When sin was shown to him, he grabbed it and owned it. And was horrified about it. And looked no further than the mirror. Secondly, Jesus was terrified. Terrified with what? The coming, as a consequence of being the sin bearer, Murphy. The coming tsunami of God's wrath upon his own body. The horror of our sin, but taking it, and the consequence of that, the absolute necessary consequence is the terror of what he's going to experience at the cross. He knows it's coming. How does he know it? How does he know it? Mary, how does he know it? The scriptures. How does he know the terror of it? The scriptures. The Holy Spirit. That's how he knows everything, Mount. Mount Moriah over here. Jesus was not only, not only entered the garden experiencing the horror of bearing our sin, but also the terror of undergoing the wrath of God. When Jesus offered himself to God as our substitute, when did he do that? You remember the covenant of redemption we talked about? Anybody remember that? In the eternal decrees of God before the foundation of the world. And I don't know how this works within a time, time concept because in God there is no time. God creates time. God creates eternity. You know, everybody said, well, God lives in eternity. No, 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 no. God creates eternity for us. Apart from the creative order, there is no eternity. God just is. 
How does that work? I don't know, you know? I don't know. But before the foundations of the world, the Son of God, being led by the Father's will, agrees to be the substitute for the sin of the Father's people, empowered and led by the Spirit. Now, the Son of God knows this fully. He knows it. Hasn't experienced it yet until humanity, but he knows it. Knowing that, here's what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Knowing it, he agrees to become the agent of creation, speaking it into existence, the Holy Spirit applying the reality of that speaking into a physical universe. What kind of a God is this? What kind of a God is this that at the absolute highest cost to share the glory of his own goodness and mercy, his own character and nature with his people, this decision has to be made. Jesus knows this as he enters the garden. He knows this. He knows that not if, but when his people sin. Jesus knows that when he creates Adam and Eve, you do realize it was the Son of God creating it. When I say Jesus, that's as to his humanity, but the Son of God creates Adam and Eve. All things were made by him and for him. Remember Colossians 1.15. And when he creates Adam and Eve and he blows the breath of air into Adam's nostril and then he takes the woman out of Adam's side and creates her and brings her to him and say, this is your wife and the two shall become one flesh. Remember in Genesis chapter 2? He knows that when he does this, he will have to pay the most awesome price for their redemption. And he does it with joy. I better not get ahead of myself. When Jesus offers himself to God as our substitute, when would that happen? Ephesians 1, 4. Before the foundation of the world. He knew that God would lay the guilt of our sin upon him to declare him judicially guilty of all our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. He did not make Jesus a literal sinner. He made him judicially Sinful. In other words, he declared that Jesus was guilty of the sin of those whom he would represent as their substitute. Correct? You got that? And so all of those who are in Christ, their sin is imputed or credited or declared to be Jesus' guilt. As if Jesus had literally sinned himself, which he did not. And so he goes to the cross bearing that which we have done and who we are as a result of the fall. As if he himself were literally a sinner. Never sinning, Hebrews 4, 15 but being treated as if he were a vile sinner. 
He knew that he would have to endure the same punishment that any of us would have to pay before the justice of God. And when did he know this? Before the foundation of the world. So when the Holy Spirit conceived in the womb of Mary the body of a man in whom the Son of God would dwell in union with the human nature, when the Holy Spirit did that, he knew he was triggering in a time frame this day in Gethsemane. He knew it. He knew it. You see, Jesus knew that he, the Father's beloved Son, would be treated as the Father's enemy at the cross. There there had never been in all eternity an experience of not being and experiencing the Father's sonship, the sonship with the Father. Never had been. And yet at the cross... The Son of God in the humanity of Jesus experiences what it is to be God's enemy. Now, the Son of God is the eternal Son, but he experiences what it is to be an enemy enslaved to sin in the humanity of Jesus. Do we get that? It is not the Son of God himself who was being tortured at the cross. It is the Son of God experiencing that in the humanity of Jesus where the two natures, the Son's nature and the man's nature, are dwelling together in unity but not intermixed, distinct natures in the one person. It's called the hypostatic union, if any of you want a fancy word. You see, Jesus knew that his intimate face-to-face fellowship with the Father would result in the Father turning his face from him at the cross. Some of you have experienced this. A loved one is leaving home, and you may not see that loved one either for a long time or forever. Anybody ever experienced that? Come on, come on. Yes, anybody? What's the grip? The grip is this. I won't see his or her face anymore. Right? Do you remember how you felt when that loved one left? How must Jesus have felt experiencing as a man face-to-face fellowship and intimacy with God and then having that to be withdrawn as an experience? He knew that he... Jesus, the Lord of life, would experience the penalty of death at the cross. Why? Because Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. He knows all this. This is a mixture in him as he goes to the cross. Horror for what? To bear our sin. Please make it a purpose To seek God and growing in the experience of what my sin and your sin, how it affects God. Let's make that something that we do.
So the next time you were tempted in whatever area and to whatever degree to sin, and you've realized this, you can rise up with great strength because you are not going to swallow this pollution. It so horrifies you as to your walk with God and the natural consequences that you will run from it and do anything you can to get away from the temptation. Not sit and think about it and wonder if, and I wonder this and that. And we begin to have a discussion with ourselves, which the enemy loves, because as we begin to try to figure out how to sin without sinning. Come on. Anybody there? Anybody there? How can I figure this out so I can sin with impunity? Do you know what impunity means? You ain't going to be punished. We need to stop it. We need to see the Son of God being crushed for me. And then we need to see the consequences of that which he bore to the cross. But he not only entered the garden with horror for our sin and terror over the wrath of God, but he also entered it with the horror and the terror being mixed with joy. Being mixed with joy. Remember Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, what? Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. You remember that? Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him. How can a man experience such horror and terror and joy at the same time? And because he can, so can we. Can't we? We can face the worst of life and in our bodies be frightened and scared and whatever and undone and be faced the worst tragedies and all, but we can still face them intermixed with the joy of the Lord. How do I know that? Jesus says, my joy I give to you, not as the world giveth, do I give to you. It's my joy. We have this same joy. But what is this joy? You see, Jesus knew the scriptures that spoke of the great joy. Listen to this. Sorry, let me say this. How could Jesus experience it? This is divine joy, by the way. It's not human joy. It's divine joy. It is a divine gift. It is the experience of the love of God. Galatians 5.22. For the fruit singular, of the Spirit is love, period. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But then Paul says, let me help you to understand some of the ramifications of love. So the experience of love is joy. The effect of love is peace. And the, experience, uh, and the, and the expression of love, uh, the next seven words. That's what he's doing. He's not giving you nine different things. He's giving you one word for the fruit, and descriptive, the experience is joy, the effect is peace with God, Romans 5.1, and the next seven of the expression of that love of God that flows in me and out of me, being developed by the Spirit. It's the Spirit, it is the joy of God that Jesus has in him, in his humanity. 
Remember this joy? Luke 2, 10, 11. And the angel said to these shepherds, don't be afraid before. Behold what? I bring you news, good news, good news, gospel. I bring you good news of a what? Of a great joy. Whose joy? The joy of the Father. As his will will be accomplished. The joy of a heavenly father who will experience joy over giving his people joy. The joy of God knowing that he is going to receive joy over his gift of joy to his people. Amen? Christmas Day, hopefully this is true of most, where is the greater joy? In the children or in the parents? Certainly in the children who are receiving joy because of a gift. But the parents are receiving the greater joy because of the joy in their kids as he has joyfully given to them, and they have experienced the joy of receiving from him, and his joy is manifested. That's how that works. Jesus enters the garden. He knows that his obedience is a great joy to God. It's a great joy. Because, you see, the great sorrow of the Son of God is over our sin. But the great joy of the Son of God is, as I experience the horror of the sin, and as I am going to be experiencing the terror of the fury of the wrath of God, my Heavenly Father is going to be joy-filled, and joy will be experienced in the Godhead because of what I am doing to bring God's people, my Father's people, back into his house they having been captured by Satan to do his will all their days. Jesus entered the garden. He knew that his obedience was a great joy to God. He was about to fulfill God's eternal purpose, which would reveal the glory of God in and through his people. And what informed Jesus' joy in Gethsemane? What informed his horror? What informed his terror? What was it? The Scriptures. He knew all this through the scriptures. And he trusted God by the Spirit through the scriptures. I don't have time to go through all this, but let me just go through it quickly. I have four things I want to say at least. This is what he knew by the scriptures. He knew God would raise him from the dead. Listen, he's a man. He's a man facing death. And he has to face death as he has to face everything in life the same way we have to. And we have to face it the same way he has to. By sheer faith in the written word of God as revealed and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. He has nothing else going for him. He has only the scriptures. And what else does he need besides the scriptures? Oh, God, that we would not look every place here and there when we forget that the entire issue and the answer and the application is in the Scripture for us. He knew 
he would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, 9 through 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Remember Hebrews 12, 2. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? My flesh dwells secure, facing death. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, to the other, uh, under, to death. Or you will not let your Holy One see experience. I'm sorry, see corruption or experience death and in his body decay. You're not going to do that. He knew this psalm. He knew it was about him. Secondly, he knew God would exalt him. He knew that after dying, he would be raised from the dead and be exalted. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. He knew the final result. Number three, he also knew he would inherit a people. That going into the garden, he was agreeing to do what he did in order that the Father would have a people in Jesus. When Jesus does this work, he would inherit a people, and then he would give these people to God the Father. Psalm 2, 7 and 8, I would declare the decree of the Lord. A decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Ends of the earth. Genesis 128. Fulfilled. Genesis 126 through 28. It's fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in the Garden of Eden. He knew he would rule over a kingdom. Remember God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. I will raise up your seed or your offspring. A man. I will raise him up after you who shall come from your body. He will be a physical descendant, Romans 1, 3. According, Jesus is born according to the flesh, the body from David. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. This is the house we're in today, the house of, of God. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. You see, Jesus knew that his obedience unto death would result and the reestablishment of God's original intention for Adam and Eve. Therefore, and I say this anticipating next week, Jesus did not enter the garden as a victim. Please get this. Don't be a victim. You don't know what they did to me, and you don't know how they said it. And we were treated that way. Don't be a victim. Jesus did not enter the garden as a victim, but what? As the victor. And next week we'll talk about that.